The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. I heard a story this week about a man named John who attended church since his childhood. He even grew up and thought, you know what, I think the Lord is calling me into ministry. And so he went to seminary for a while. But the problem is, John just didn't get it. Throughout his whole life, he struggled with his faith. And as he came through seminary, he found himself more discouraged than ever. And so years later, he met an old friend of his from seminary named Max. And he sat down for coffee with Max. And when he sat down, he said, Max, I don't understand. I've I've gone through seminary. I know the Bible. I know the history. I know the philosophy. I, I know all these things. But can you just tell me? What is this all about? I mean, what's the center of it? Don't don't give me all the rules. Don't give me all this other stuff. Give me the meaning of the Bible. Give me the central focus. And Max sat back for a while, and he had so many thoughts going through his mind of what he wanted to say to his friend. So many ideas. But he confessed later on that on that morning, he felt like he had nothing good to say. That he couldn't answer his question. And so years later, Max, who was a theologian and a Christian author, decided to write a book. And the book was to answer the question, what is this all about? And the book was about the cross. It's all about the cross. And no version of Christianity that doesn't have the cross as its central focus is Christianity at all. It is the sacrifice of the Son of God that we meet here today about. I mean, that's what this whole thing is all about. Cicero was a Roman philosopher who died 40 years before Jesus was born. He once wrote about the crucifixion. He said that it was the extreme and ultimate punishment of slaves. Josephus was a Jewish historian born seven years after Jesus' death. He calls death by crucifixion the most pitiable of all deaths. It was so cruel that death by crucifixion was illegal for a Roman citizen. Only conquered people whom they considered to be slaves could ever be crucified. W.H. Auden said Christmas and Easter can be subjects for poetry But Good Friday, like Auschwitz, cannot. The reality is so horrible, it is not surprising that people should have found it a stumbling block to faith. Wearing a cross back in the first century would be akin to wearing an electric chair around your neck today. The cross was the most horrible version of death that the Roman army could imagine. And when they found this type of death, they used it. They used it to terrify people from doing anything wrong. Today, we will talk about the cross. It's kind of strange to me that we are celebrating Good Friday, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine going to uh, the, the death of a person who had committed crimes and watching them be killed in the electric chair and coming back and on your way home thinking, 
you know what? This was a really good Friday. I mean, seriously, like, I think from this point forward, of all Fridays that ever existed, we should call this Good Friday, because we got to see that guy killed, and that was just so good. I can't imagine doing that. I mean, when I grew up, every Friday was a Good Friday, right? Um, it's a little bit different for me now, but can you imagine why? I mean, what other religion would take the day that their founder, that their master, that their teacher, that their king was crucified and call that Good Friday. To many, it makes little sense. And I understand why people looking from the outside would would see what we're doing today, meeting and celebrating Good Friday, and think, man, they're crazy. I get that. The question I want to ask today is, why do we celebrate this death? I can understand celebrating the death of a tyrant. Uh, I understand why when we watch a, a movie that has a villain, we we look forward to the day that that villain will meet their justice. But why do we celebrate this death? The death of a man who had done nothing the wrong. The death of a man who had never sinned once. As we walk through the events of Good Friday, we will see that the crucifixion from the perspective of those present. And what I want to do is I want to look at just five groups of people or five people and see their perspective on the events of Good Friday. We'll begin our story with Judas Iscariot. His name is infamous. You say the name Judas Iscariot and everybody knows that is the name of the greatest betrayer in all of human history. For three years, he walked with Jesus. He ate what he ate. He saw Jesus' miracles. He heard his teachings. He slept where he slept. In fact, in some ways, Judas would have known the ministry of Jesus and the character of Jesus, and the power of Jesus more than his own mother. Meaning, he was with him for three years straight. That's why this is such a stunning betrayal. It's so shocking to think that one of the twelve who knew all of who Jesus was and knew his power and knew his goodness would betray him like this. As preparations are made for the Passover feast, Judas slips out to speak to the chief priests who he knows only want to see Jesus killed. Jesus is there preparing a table for him to to enjoy the Passover supper together, and Judas is out betraying him. Less than 48 hours later, Judas would come. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 15, we see what Judas was doing. It says, And he said unto him, What will you give me? This is Judas speaking to the chief priest. What will you give me? And I will deliver him to you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Judas betrayed the life of his master for around three to six months worth of wages. 30 pieces of silver. Within 48 hours, Judas was leading a group of armed soldiers through the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is found praying while the the apostles are asleep. Mark 14, 43 says, And immediately, while he, Jesus, yet spake, cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And he that betrayed him 
had given them a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. It's amazing to me as we read this account how it seems as though Judas, despite the betrayal, is still trying to justify himself, still trying to make himself not the bad guy in all of this. Isn't it true that very often when we sin and we do wrong things, what we like to do is cover them up? And so he says, oh, this is the man, but lead him away safely. Oh yeah, that's, that's really nice. Like, like you haven't heard that they've been trying to kill him for years. Lead him away safely. Oh, it, it's the one that I kiss. And so he goes over and kiss him. He calls him master, master. How cowardly. If you're going to betray somebody, at least do it like a man. Does that even make sense? It doesn't. But how disgusting the way Judas acts. How could he do this to Jesus? Well, the answer is probably detailed, but I think it comes down to this one point. Ultimately, he believed that his plan was better than God's. He believed that his plan for his own life was better than God's, and he believed that his plan for Jesus was better than God's. And so he acted selfishly. Our story moves on. Jesus is taken to the home of Annas. Annas was the father-in-law of the high priest, um, Caiaphas, and he was the the past high priest before Caiaphas took the the role. And so Jesus is taken, and here the Jewish judicial proceedings begin. When we think of judicial proceedings, we usually think of a civilized courtroom where you have a judge and you have both parties sitting and both parties with an opportunity to speak and to present their case. This was nothing like that. This is taking place in the middle of the night. This is is a place where he is mocked, he is scorned, he is beaten, he is spit upon, and he is questioned. And one after another after another, false witnesses come forward to try try and throw something at Jesus that will stick. But the problem is, as they accuse him, all of the accusers, their stories don't match. They can find nothing wrong with Jesus. In Matthew 26, verse 59, it says, Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. Unfortunately for them, verse 60 says, But found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. So finally, the high priest in desperation asked Jesus plainly, Art thou the Christ, the Son of God? Matthew 26, 64, Jesus answers. Jesus said unto them, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. High priest responds, You have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. The men in this room are the the 70-member council called the Sanhedrin. These were the religious leaders of the Jews, but understand they weren't just uh, a bunch of Jewish priests that that worked in different synagogues. This was the ruling body of all of Judaism. These were the people that everybody looked to if they wanted to know what it meant to be holy. 
They wanted to know what, what the Bible meant in the Old Testament when it said certain things. These were the guys who were supposed to lead, be leading the people of Israel toward God. And what are their actions? False witnesses brought forward. Beating, spitting, mocking. Matthew 26, verse 67 says, They did spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ. Who is he that smote thee? Do you see what they're doing? I mean, hitting him in the face and then saying, Tell us, Christ, who do you think hit you? Can you imagine this kind of evil coming from this group of people who are supposed to be the religious leaders? They're the examples They're the ones leading people to God? What could possibly provoke such uncontrollable anger from men like this? Jesus was a threat. He was a threat to their position. He was a threat to their self-righteous religion. He was a threat to the law that they had bound themselves to. The religious leaders here said, Jesus, we have our religion. I have what I need to justify myself. And your teachings are threatening to upend that, to to turn it on its head. And so instead of falling at the feet of the Savior and, and recognizing their own need of salvation, recognizing their helplessness, instead of doing that, these religious leaders said, we're going to kill the one that threatens my self-righteousness. And that's what they did. He exposed that the religion was self-serving. He exposed that they too were sinners in need of a Savior. And they would have none of it. Their hatred for Jesus was so great that when given the opportunity, they beat and tortured and spit upon and and plucked the beard from a man who had done absolutely nothing wrong. And they knew it. So the religious leaders, Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, Bring Jesus bound unto Pontius Pilate. The Jewish leaders wanted Jesus dead, Jesus dead, but they had a problem. In fact, they had two problems. The first problem was they knew that Jesus was popular among many of the Jews. And so they feared if they were just to kill him right there, they would make him a martyr for his cause. But the second problem was they didn't have the authority to put a man to death. Ironically, it is Pontius Pilate three years later that had taken the authority from the Jews of capital punishment. And so because of Pontius Pilate rule three years later, now they bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate. But what we find is that Pontius Pilate, the governor or prefect of Judea, is the king of avoidance. He does everything he can not to deal with Jesus. First, he sends Jesus to Herod. Herod would be the ruler of of that whole region. And he thinks, well, this is good. I don't have to deal with the Jews. I don't have to deal with this mess. I'm going to send him to Herod. But the problem is, Herod finds nothing wrong with him. You know, he mocks him. He beats him a little bit. But he sends him back to Pontius Pilate and says, I don't want to deal with Jesus. You deal with him. And so Pontius Pilate is left in this predicament. He has Jesus here, whom he already suspects is innocent. But he has all of these Jewish people who want to see him killed. And if you understand, the, the, job of, the job description of the governor of Judea was simply to keep the Jews from revolting. His job was to keep them happy and paying their taxes, keep them under the thumb of the Roman Empire, make sure that, that not 
enough people get upset with the Roman Empire that they'd want to revolt. And so he's in this predicament that he knows Jesus might be innocent already, but all of the Jewish leaders who represent Israel are now coming to him, calling for his death. And so he's not really sure at this point what to do. He tries at first to give Jesus back to the religious leaders. He says, I don't want to deal with him. He's a Jew. Why don't you deal with him? But they explained to him that, well, because you don't let us put anyone to death. Then he questions Jesus to attempt to determine what he has done wrong. In John 18, 38, he concludes that I find in him no fault at all. So he has another brilliant idea. There's a custom that at the Passover feast, the governor of Judea allows one Jewish prisoner to go free. This is is an act of kindness to the Jewish people. So he brings this up and he says, can I let Jesus free since you have this one person to let free? Do you want to free Barabbas, who is a murderer and a thief? He's equivalent to a Jewish terrorist. Or do you want to let Jesus free, the king of the Jews? But the plan backfires. The crowd who has been swayed by the Jewish leaders cry for the release of Barabbas. Instead of killing Jesus, Pontius, Pontius Pilate, I mean, you got to understand, it, he, he's really trying to avoid this. He, he does really everything he can to avoid it. He says, that instead of crucifying Jesus, I'll have him scourged badly. And when they see what I've done to him, surely they'll have mercy. Surely they'll have pity. They'll let him go. And so he, Jesus is stripped naked. They take the cat of nine tails, which is a, a whip that would have nine different um, ropes coming from it. And each of those ropes would be um, filled with sharp objects tied onto them. So that when you whipped the person, the sharp objects would dig into the back dig into the back of the legs and the backside. And, and, and as they were pulled out, it would rip the flesh open. And so Jesus goes through the scourging, a scourging that so many of, so many Jewish people, so many, so many men had died from. It was so brutal. Just this, this terrible agony that Jesus is going through. The soldiers fashion a crown of thorns and they shove it on his head. They put a purple robe on him, and they mock him. And they mock him. Jesus went through so much mocking that day. Then he's brought back in front of the bloodthirsty crowd once again. His face is now beaten, unrecognizable, black and blue. His beard is partially torn from his face. He's wearing a purple robe and a crown of thorns. The purple robe just drenched in blood and sweat. Spit, sweat, and blood are wetting his head. His entire backside is now shredded to pieces. Everywhere he steps, there is a trail of blood. Blood dripping from his hand, his forehead, his body shaking from the agony. And Pilate, expecting pity, is shocked when the crowd cheers louder. Crucify him. Crucify him. Can you imagine Jesus looking into that crowd? Can you imagine 
the fact that Jesus is the God-man, and he can look at every person and know everything that they've done, that he knows every hair on their head, that he knows their name, that he, he has, I mean, created them. He gave them life. He gave them breath. Now they're using this breath that they were given to shout the words, crucify him. So Pilate, reluctantly, says, take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Pilate brings Jesus um, to the Roman soldiers. He washes his hands of the whole thing, as if washing your hands somehow cleanses you of sin. It doesn't. And the Roman soldiers take Christ. Now, the Roman soldiers are kind of interesting here because, I mean, they were just showing up for work that day. I mean, this was just a normal Friday for them. They knew there was at least two men that needed to be crucified. Now there's three. No big deal. They were in the Roman army, and they had a job to do. On that day, the job was to brutally execute three criminals. It was the job of these men to make other men suffer as much as possible. They were relentless, tortured. They had mastered the art of humiliation. When we see the depiction of Christ on the cross with just a little bit of blood dripping from the crown of thorns and and a little bit of blood from his hands and and just a little bit of blood from his feet, he's well clothed and, and covered up, that it's just this pristine picture of the cross, know that no Roman guard would ever let that happen. The the purpose was to inflict as much pain as possible and to humiliate as much as possible. And you can imagine all that's involved in that. Jesus' robe was custom-made. So rather than tear it apart, the soldiers cast lots for his garments. Because he's just a regular prisoner, and he's got a nice coat. They send Jesus up to carry the cross. When he could not carry it anymore, help was enlisted by a man named Simon. Finally, they arrived at the place of the skull. We call it Golgotha or Calvary. Jesus would be made to lie down on the cross. Rather than fight, he stretched his own arms out. Now, either they would have taken rope and tied his arms with the rope and then put... um, the stakes into his hands and his feet, or they would have put the stakes through his wrists. Um, but he gives those, those hands willingly. And, and, and I feel like at this point, these soldiers must be starting to realize there's something different about this one. Who gives their hands to be crucified? Who appears as though they're not being forced to do this, but that instead they're willingly giving their life? This is not a normal crucifixion. And yet for them, Jesus is a criminal, and he is mocked as one would be, he is beaten as one would be. At this point, the crucifixion is just like the one last week. Finally, Jesus is raised up. The wood that he would have been on drops into the hole, jarring Jesus' body. And here we have Jesus the Savior of the world, held up on a cross between two thieves, just like a normal criminal. 
But the crowd's attention isn't on the two thieves. Strangely, all the crowd is doing is mocking Christ, is hurling insults at him. And so the thieves join in. In Matthew 27, 44, the thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Can you imagine these two thieves who know what they've done joining in as another man is crucified, going through the same pain as they're enduring? But Luke gives us more detail. In Luke chapter 23, verse 39, we read, And one of the malefactors, criminals, which were hanged, railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we, indeed, justly. For we have received the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, This man is being crucified. He's enduring the worst form of punishment that is known to mankind for a crime. And his response to that is, we deserve this. So he recognizes the depth of his sin that deserves a a punishment like this. And he has the audacity to say these words to Jesus. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Can you imagine? Ten minutes ago, you were hurling insults at him. And now you're asking him to remember you when you come into, your, into his kingdom? I mean, it's a crazy question. It makes no sense at all. What's in, more insane is Jesus' response. He said unto him, Verily I say unto you, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. What grace for a man deserving of crucifixion. This day you'll be with me in paradise. Around noon, after three hours of hanging on the cross, the sky goes dark. At that moment, it seems God would turn his back on his son. At that moment, in the eyes of God, Jesus was no longer his beloved son. Jesus was sin. His wrath was poured down on the head of Christ. The pain and the loneliness that Christ felt caused him to cry out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? No time in history past or history future will that sentence ever be uttered. Could that ever be uttered? Yet at this moment, Christ is no longer the beloved Son. Christ is sin. All of your sins and all of my sins are embodied in in Christ. And all of the wrath of God, the just and righteous wrath of God, a holy judge, is being poured out on the head of Christ. So if you think that the physical torture that Christ went through on the cross was bad, it was nothing compared to these moments. When the sky goes dark and Christ cries out. See, this is the cup. This is the cup that Christ wanted to pass. It wasn't just the torture. What Christ experienced on the cross was different from what those thieves experienced on the cross. The sky was dark for three hours before Jesus shouted with a loud voice, It is finished. 
His words did not signify that his time was up. They didn't signify that the crucifixion had almost been completed. The words literally mean paid in full. It's an accounting term. It means there's no more debt. It means every part of the payment for sin had been made. And Jesus gave up the ghost. Now we know the story does not end here. We know that Easter Sunday is right around the corner, but at that moment, it would seem evil had won the day. Death had swallowed up the one who called himself Christ. The grave was victorious. It was the only place to lay the lifeless body. The Jewish leaders had been successful in their endeavor. They had thwarted Jesus' teaching. They they felt as though that they no longer had to deal with this one who would call them not to their own righteousness, but would call them to repentance. The Roman soldiers could pat themselves on the back, having completed a job well done. And Mary, mother of Jesus, John, the beloved disciple, and the other ladies at the cross were devastated. You can't imagine what it would be like for Mary to watch all of this happen to her son. And at this moment, Christ is dead. There's no breath. There's no life. There's no hope. He's gone. Evil had won the day. The rest of the disciples, the cowards that wouldn't even show up to the cross, are now locked in an upper room. Surely they would hear about what happened. And surely they would know that there's no hope. That the day is over. When Jesus gave up the ghost, Satan let out a sigh of relief. Because he believed. He had won. That feeling on Good Friday, that feeling of loss, hopelessness, it lasted Friday evening and all day Saturday. And even as they woke up on Sunday morning, there's that pit knowing that it's all over. And then everything changed. The tomb was empty. Death didn't win. Death was overcome. The grave was conquered. Jesus is alive. So, there is a reason that we celebrate today. We celebrate because the cross and the tomb and the resurrection is the final solution to the finality of death. Matthew Henry said, Come and see the victories of the cross. Christ's wounds are thy healing. His agonies, thy repose. His conflicts, thy conquests. His groans, thy songs. His pains, thine ease. His shame, thy glory. His death, thy life. His sufferings, thy salvation. Pastor's right. We don't celebrate Good Friday because of, because of the torture and the agony that Christ went through. But we celebrate Good Friday because of what was accomplished on Good Friday. Namely, that the Son of God, the perfect and righteous Son of God, the Lamb, was shed. His blood was shed so that sinners could be free. That's a reason to celebrate. Unfortunately, the vast majority that day that came to the foot of the cross missed its power. They misunderstood its purpose. They thought that a teacher was being killed. And that's it. 
Judas was there. He saw the cross as a way of padding his pockets. Soon after, he would realize what had happened, realize what he had done. And in his guilt and shame, rather than calling out to God for forgiveness, takes his own life. The religious leaders were there, and they were there to protect their position and their self-righteousness. They made sure that Christ was put to death. They thought they had won. Pilate was there. His mind was bound up in the opinion of others. Though he knew Christ was innocent, because of how others would view him, and because of his political position, he decided it was best to just let a righteous man die. The soldiers were there, and for the most part, they were going through the motions. There is a small hope in Matthew chapter 27, verse 54. It says, when following Jesus' death, the commanding officer says, truly, this man was the Son of God. The thieves were there. They were literally dragged there and nailed to a piece of wood so they could not leave. One of them joins in the mocking. The other receives forgiveness and grace and hope. The hope that within hours he would be with God in paradise. And so many others were there. The angry mob. Who knows if they knew what they were saying? Maybe they were going along with the crowd. Maybe, maybe they had the same attitude as the religious leaders. I'm sure you had some who were just curious to see the crucifixion. You know, who doesn't want to watch a good crucifixion? I'm sure there were many there. Just like that. You have the devastated mother and the friends. And ultimately... There were many people there who came for a variety of reasons. But they all stood at the foot of the cross. They all saw the events unfold. And they all, in one way or another, responded to what they saw. Some responded with apathy. Some pride, what they had accomplished. Some guilt and shame. Some responded in faith. But they all responded. Can I tell you something? The same thing is true today. We stand at the foot of the cross. Today we're here considering together on Good Friday what Christ did nearly 2,000 years ago. We've told the story. We've pictured what Christ went through. But at some point, we all need to respond. I don't know why you're here today. Maybe some of you feel obligated to be here. Maybe it's because your family dragged you along. Maybe, maybe you're 13 years old and your mom grabbed your ear and just pulled you out here. Maybe, maybe you're an adult male and your wife grabbed your ear and pulled you <laughs> to the car. I don't know why you're here. But now we stand together today, having gone through the story of the crucifixion, recognizing that Christ claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed that he would die in the place of sinners, and then he did die, and then he rose again. And those facts, they require a response. This whole story, maybe you think it's a fabrication. I commend you to history. I mean, look up historians, and you'll see that it's not. I mean, the fact that Christ died at the hands of Pontius Pilate, the fact that, that many of his disciples believed that they had seen him risen from the grave and were transformed by that belief, all those things are historical facts. I don't know why you're here, but it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter why you're here. It matters what you do now. How will you respond to the events of Good Friday? 
What is the meaning of the cross? Do you recognize that the suffering he went through, he went through on your behalf? That the blood that was poured out was meant to cover you, to cover your sins? Do you understand that the cross is supposed to be the great exchange where all of our sin is placed on Christ and all of his perfect righteousness is granted to us? That's the purpose of the cross, that we can be justified? John Stott said, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Do you recognize today that that the reason that Christ went to the cross is because you are a sinner? Because you've broken God's holy law. And because God was making the only way for you to become right with him, to be reconciled to him. See, that thief, he had done nothing good in his life. He had no merits of his own. And what that thief did is he called out to Jesus. He says, we deserve to be here. We deserve the punishment. We are sinners. This man is not. He's perfect and he's righteous. I need that. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The thief had the right response to the cross. It is recognizing our hopelessness, our helplessness, considering ourselves as sinners and seeing the Savior who died for us. It's putting our faith in that Savior. Martin Luther said, Is it not wonderful news to believe that salvation lies outside ourselves? (laughs) Can I tell you something? For me, that is the best news in the world. Because if salvation had anything to do with me, I'm going to hell. That's it. There's, I know me. I know my heart. I know my thoughts. I know my actions. But my salvation rests in what Christ accomplished on the cross. When he said it is finished, he meant it is paid in full. My debt is paid in full. And so what do we do? Well, there's a great story in Acts chapter 16 of a man who sees these incredible miracles that the prison gates opened and all of the, the prisoners still there. And he realizes that this is the work of God. And so he looks to Paul and he says, what must I do to be saved? Do you know what Paul says? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. That answer, I mean, that question, you ask that question, what, what must I do to be saved? And that's the answer. Put your faith and trust in the Christ who died for you. Ask him to save you. Get alone by yourself today. Even as we sing, ask him to be your savior. Repent, realize there's nothing you can offer, nothing you can do, and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to once again, tell the story of your love for sinners. To think that the one who spoke the world into existence is now willingly giving himself, giving his hands and his feet to be nailed to a cross, giving his brow to be beaten, giving his beard to be plucked out, giving himself to be mocked. Lord, that you suffered for us. God, I pray for those that don't know you as Savior, that they would realize that this is is not just a religious 
tradition. This is not just a day we get together. Um, we call it Good Friday, Lord. This is, this is the central focus of the entire Bible. This is the most important event in all of history. That Christ died for our sins. And Lord, help those that don't know you to call out to you today in salvation, for salvation. Now, Lord, for those of us who know you, let us be reminded once again of what this life is about. We ought to live for the King that died for us. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.